Turn with me then in your Bibles to page 1156. That's 1156. 1156. That's where you're going to find Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Page 1156. We're going to read from verse 15, which in our Bibles is entitled The Law and the Promise. We're going to read to verse 29, so to the end of the chapter, but our focus will be on the verses 21 and 22. Hear the word of God. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that, would, that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now I direct your attention again, verses 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. May the Lord now add his blessing to that word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have rather providentially in God's goodness and grace a perfect example of how practical the teachings of the book of Galatians are for our lives. When we read maybe the book of Galatians, when we read the tightly uh, argued position of the Apostle Paul over against the false teachers that were troubling the churches that were in that part of Asia, uh, then we might read and, and think, well, this really doesn't affect me because I'm not that kind of a person. I'm not in their circumstance. It's all very interesting from a historical point of view, but it doesn't really touch my life. We do our devotions. We read through our Bible. We get to Galatians. We go neat but that's about it. It doesn't seem to touch our days. 
But today, we got to see Peyton baptized. Today, we got to see the promise of God uh, signified and sealed as He's done that to everyone here who's been baptized. We get to see God say some remarkable things to young Peyton about His care for her, His love for her, His uh, saving work, and His sanctifying presence. We hear about God's grace and goodness towards her, and, and we rest joyfully, don't we, as parents, as church community, we celebrate that. We say, isn't it wonderful to know that our children have received this promise of blessing and the Lord will make His promise sure. They are all His promises. Yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so for Peyton, she is ensconced in God's faithfulness. But you go, wait a second. For Ryan and Casey... Indeed, for all of us as parents, isn't there still an obligation? Isn't there still a a, a demand? Isn't there still some rules that need to be followed? We can't just assume, can we, that Peyton's going to grow up and become a believer and that she's going to be in the church and everything's going to be fine. No, she needs to be raised well. She needs to be taught what it means to live the Christian life. She needs to be taught to be polite and to be hardworking and to be honest and to be all of these things, faithful and true. Those things that the law teaches us to do. And isn't that so much of what our parenting is all about? We're teaching our children the law. We're saying this is how you ought to live. Be kind to others when you go to school and you're on the playground. Be respectful of your teacher, of your parents, of your kingdom seeker counselor, cadet counselor. All of these rules that we teach to our children and then if they contravene them, if they break them, then we in some way punish them. We give them some kind of uh, a a reminder that that's a bad idea, that's not allowed. All of these rules form so much, isn't it, of what our parenting is. Which is very good, of course. Of course it is. We're trying to teach our children to live rightly. But now what's the relationship between the water of baptism, God saying to Peyton, you are mine, I am yours, I'm going to work a wonderful work in your life, and you're going to be redeemed. And the law, the but wait, wait a minute, Peyton, you've you got to listen, you've got to obey, you've got to be kind, you've got to be good. What's the relationship between Ryan and Casey's parenting and the promises of God. Now see, that is exactly the question that we all struggle with, not just in parenting, but in life. In life. As a Christian community. As a Christian community, we have members right now who are making poor choices, living in sin, acting rebelliously, doing things that are contrary to the Word of God. And we're not talking here necessarily huge things. We're not talking here uh, uh, living in rebellion, open rebellion before God. We're sometimes talking very simple things. Simple ways in which a member of the congregation has made a decision that is not in keeping with what the Word of God teaches. Now what do we do as a community? Do we say, well, well now you you are out because you are, you, that is terrible. Or do we say, well, no, God's grace is sufficient. We can cover that with love. We can look over that and forgive that because that's what God's done for us. Do we live as a community with a set of rigid and respectable rules or do we live as a community with a great deal of mercy and love? What's the relationship between law and promise? It's it's not an easy question to answer. 
the Bible at times seems to us to be speaking out of two sides of its mouth because there are passages that make it clear that we are living in a season of grace. Romans 6.14, just before uh, the book of Galatians, uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans, in chapter 6, verse 14, he says, in a passage dealing with baptism as well, he says, uh, you are not under law, but under grace. Right? The Lord says you are free. And so many passages explain and express that to us about forgiveness, about being washed clean, about being free. Do not give up your freedom, Paul will say in Galatians, for slavery. But then Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, the will of our Father is written in the Bible, so we don't have to guess at what that will is. We know what we're talking about here. Jesus says, you, if just because you call me Lord, just because you believe, just because you can say my name, just because you claim to be a Christian, just because you think you're going to heaven does not mean you're going to heaven. Many will say, but Lord, Lord, and I will say, I did not know you. Away from me, you evildoer, because you did not do my Father's will. You go, well, which is it now? Scripture, which is it? Bible. You say at the one hand it's all of grace, and then you say on the other that it's all of works. Paul says it is free. James says you have to do it. What is it? Bible. Is it works or is it grace? It's hard to understand. It's hard to bring these things together. It's a very practical Christian question. We're going to face it this week as we go out in living for the Lord. What is the answer to the relationship between law and gospel, between law and promise? It's not easy to understand. But thankfully, we have a passage before us that begins to help us. A passage that begins in verse 21 in this way, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Now that question arises. Paul anticipates his readers asking it. It's one of these questions that Paul knows because he's a very experienced pastor, that when he explains things, this is what people say to him. Here's how people respond. They've heard him speak, and then they say, well, wait a second, Paul. Sounds to me like you're saying the law is contrary to the promises. Now, why would people think that if they were listening to Paul preach? Well, because of what he had just said. In verse 19, he had asked, why then the law? And the answer is it was added because of transgressions. And we saw then that the law was added to make clear that we're sinners, that nothing we do is righteous in the eyes of the Lord, that nothing we do is enough. Indeed, the law is constantly coming to us and saying, not good enough, do better, not good enough, do better, not good enough, do better. And so you can begin to imagine, you can begin to, begin to suspect that what the law wants you to do is get better, is to obey and that if that's the case, then surely it's contrary, it is against, it is not the same thing as the promise. You might be excused for thinking that the law was working at a cross-purpose from the gospel. Because the law is busy condemning people, telling them to do better, while the gospel is busy saving people, telling them that Christ is enough. I mean, think of it this way, if God was going to save everyone by grace through faith, which is what we believe, without reference to any good works, 
then why in the world does he add all those do's and don'ts in the Old Testament? Basically, how do we square the stern requirements of the rules, which if a person does them, he'll live by them. The Lord says that in Leviticus 18, verse 5. And if you will faithfully obey, the Lord will bless you. The Lord says that in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. How do we square those rules with the call to faith in Jesus Christ? Is the law preventing us from getting saved? Is the law offering a different way of salvation? Is the law contrary to the promise? Paul answers, certainly not. But there have been people in the history of the church that have said, certainly. Yes, the law is contrary to the promise. That is, there have been those who seem to suggest that there have been in the history of redemption two ways to get saved in this world. In the Old Testament, if you obeyed the law then you were saved. That is, God sincerely and without any dishonesty gave those commandments to His people so that they might walk in them and by walking in them, satisfy Him and He would say, well done, you get saved. You might think of them like a ladder. Each one of the commandments being a rung on that ladder that when you obey it, you climb one step closer to heaven. All you had to do was keep obeying and you'd make it to God's presence. Now, there are others who take a less hard stance than this. They don't say that God actually gave the church a second way of salvation. But what they say is that God, knowing that salvation would come by grace through faith, wanted His people to learn that they couldn't do it on their own, so He pretended to give them a second way of salvation. He knew that that was never going to work. He knew they'd never obey the law. He knew they'd never get saved that way, but he pretended. He kind of said to them, well, all right, try this and see if you can do it. And after falling on their face, you know, a thousand times, he would finally say to them, well, how about we do things a different way? Either way, these two approaches to squaring the law and the promises suggest that the law is really a second way of being saved. It's not by grace through faith. It is by works. And to be honest, sometimes we also think of the law in this way too. It is when we hear the law of God, when we read in our devotions the Old Testament, we go through all of these various rules in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. We think to ourselves, well, what are these bizarre rules all about? What is the point of all of these commandments of all of these irrelevant and insignificant requirements, are they just there to test us? To make us prove how worthy or unworthy we are? Are they just an empty series of commands that we don't really have to obey? What do we do with these commands? Just think of yourself as a New Testament Christian. You're reading in the Old Testament about the dietary rules, and you say to yourself, well, we don't have to follow those, do we? Well, why not? Why not? Well, those were for the Old Testament people. Well, why were they for the Old Testament people? If they were to do good things, if they were to live well, why wouldn't you obey them today? And if they're not for good things, if they were just some sort of test, then what is the Lord saying? That there's two ways of salvation? You see, in the end, we too can struggle with the question of the law and the promises. But Paul sets us straight. He says, absolutely not. The law and the promises are not 
contrary to each other. And why aren't they contrary to each other? Because the law, this is Paul's argument, could never give life. That's it. That's all that Paul has to say. Paul says, no, they are not and never were contrary to each other. They were not working at cross purposes. There's no two ways of salvation. None of that. Because the law could never give life. Now notice that. The problem is not the law. The problem is not the particular rules or commands. It's not that they were too tough. It's not that they were too demanding. And it's certainly not that they took the worshiper in the wrong direction. It was that the law could never give life for all of its wisdom, for all of its insight, for all of its brilliance, for all of its usefulness. It could never give life. We sometimes forget that the law is actually a very good thing. It reflects God. It reflects His righteousness and holiness. I mean, for simplicity's sake, let's just leave off all of those ceremonial laws for a minute related to the priestly ministry, and let's leave off all of those civil laws that are are related to how society was organized in Canaan. Let's leave off all of those dietary laws that that the Lord declared to be fulfilled when He so spoke to Peter and gave him that vision. Let's leave all of that stuff off, and let's just think for a minute about the moral law, the Ten Commandments, we might say, but there's more than that. But we'll think about the Ten Commandments. And just ask yourself, what is God telling you to do in those ten words? Those ten commandments are not some random or irrelevant teaching that God uses to test how pious we are. They are words that tell us this is how you live with a righteous and holy God. This is how you walk with a God who is holy, holy, holy. Indeed, in this respect, we can acknowledge that the law has an eternal significance. That is, one day when we are all living on the new heavens and the new earth, we are going to obey the Ten Commandments every day, every moment, in every way. We will not break one of them. We will live perfectly in accordance with those ten words. Those ten words will be to us precious and powerful because that will of God that is righteous and holy, teaches us how to live in relationship with God. And we will want to live in relationship with God without breaking any command. In fact, in redemption, that's why we read from Jeremiah, the promise of God is that He will write that law on our hearts. That's the promise of God, even as we read in the baptismal form to Peyton today. The Lord says, I'm going to write these words, this command is going to be emblazoned on your heart which is to say that the bible never takes a dim view of the law never says that the law that doesn't need to don't worry about that's old testament business quite to the contrary paul when he speaks about the law says it's holy righteous and good in romans 7 verse 12 and in first timothy 1 verse 8 he says we know that the law is good when it is used lawfully which is to say put simply what God requires of, uh, requires of us in the law is no problem. It is good, glorious, and leads us into fellowship with God. The law of God reflects the majesty and the wonder of our God. And it teaches us how to love. That's what the law reveals. It reveals how that we should live in a loving relationship with God and with each other. 
Now, who among us would want then to take the Old Testament and all of those Old Testament laws and say they're irrelevant? They teach you how to love. You're going to say that you don't want to love? You're going to say that you don't need to love? You're going to say that these commandments don't apply to you because loving is not what you're supposed to do? You'd be very careful about saying such a thing. You'd want to avoid such a thought, wouldn't you? The problem is not with the law. But knowing that the law teaches you how to live and living that way are two very different things. Because here's the problem with our relationship with the law. It's brilliant, it's beneficial, and it brings blessing. But it is without power. It is impotent. It'll tell you what to do, but it can't make you do it. It's the whole leading a camel to water bit. Can't make it drink. And we experience that, don't we, in so many ways. Teachers, parents, employers, big brothers and big sisters. I mean, you think about a big brother. You think about Canaan saying to Peyton at some point, oh, you can't do that. You're not allowed. Mom and dad don't want you to do that. Can he make Peyton obey? Can any of us make our little brother or little sister obey? Be nice, share their toys. We know that we can't. We can, as parents, experience that. We tell our children what to do. We can't make our children do it. No matter how loudly, how meditatively, how sweetly we say it, you can communicate the gospel truth as clearly and compellingly as Christ did to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they still won't believe. Because the law cannot give life. If it could, we wouldn't need Jesus and the Holy Spirit. See, therein lies the problem. The problem with the law isn't the law. The problem with the law is us. We're dead. And we need to be brought to life. Indeed, isn't that exactly what Paul then goes on to say in verse 22? But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, it's interesting that Paul here changes his language. He changes from law to Scripture. Verse 19 says, why then the law? Verse 21 says, is the law then contrary? And verse 22 says, but the Scripture. An interesting change. Why would Paul change that? It's possible he may be thinking here very particularly of Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, which says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. But it is also possible, at least, that Paul here is not just limiting his understanding of our problem of sin to just a few passages in the Old Testament, not just the Ten Commandments, but rather the entirety of God's Word. That is, that the entire Scripture, all of what God reveals in His Word, imprisons everything under sin. Imprisons here has the idea of a net that casts, is cast into the water in order to capture fish. You think of those big trawlers that put that net and here's a school of fish swimming along minding its own business and suddenly that net scoops them up and they're they're caught they can't escape they are imprisoned in the same way scripture imprisons everything under sin notice that it says now in verse 22 but the scripture imprisoned everything 
under sin, not just every one. No, the curse of sin, in fact, lies on all of life. The Word of God places a curse not just upon our hearts, but upon our bodies. Not just on our bodies and our souls, but upon the nature, the creation around us, on our fields, on our labors, on our cars and our homes. The dust, you might say, of God's curse settles on everything. And by imposing that curse upon everything, everything becomes problematic. Everything becomes weak. Everything becomes unreliable. By imprisoning us, the Scripture not only punishes us for our sins, obviously, when we're imprisoned, that's a form of punishment, an exposure of our failures, a, an increasing of our guilt, and a generally making our lives more difficult. But when the Scripture speaks that word of curse upon all of life, it puts us in such a position that we cannot find salvation. We, we cannot find hope. We cannot find life. We cannot find joy except in the powerful, redeeming work of Christ. Every time we try, every time we try to find success in this life, apart from faith in Jesus, then the law of God comes to us and says, not good enough. Try again. Because the law of God demands perfection. A perfection none of us can achieve. Now, for many people within and without of the church, that's exactly why the law of God is such a problem. It demands obedience across all areas of life and leaves us with nothing but requiring perfect submission in everything we do. And so as a result, the law exposes ultimately our being sinners. Basically, the law is like a teacher that that just has it in for us. We can have teachers like that, can't we? We (laughs) We can have somebody who just doesn't like us. And because they don't like us, they give us an F on every assignment we get. Maybe it's a boss or a manager at work that just has it in for you and critiques everything you do. What, what happens in our relationship with that person, that authority figure who's constantly condemning us? Well, we begin not to like them at some point, don't we? Even if... Even eventually, rather, we, we, we grow angry with them and, and, and we begin to say, well, the problem is with you, not with me. Indeed, that's the brilliance of our arrogance and self-absorption. We get to blame others for our failures. We are going to convince ourselves that if we had a kinder teacher or a better boss or some other preference we might have, then we'd be good. It's not my fault I'm bad. It's because of my teacher. It's because because of my teacher that I'm failing. It's because of my boss that I got fired. It's because... And maybe that, that is true sometimes in this life, but it's certainly not true with respect to the law. Even if our world says it is, and our world does say it is, the world lays blame for guilt and shame at the foot of the church, saying that we, we're so narrow-minded, we're so bigoted, we're so patriarchal, we're so misogynistic that people are oppressed. And they're oppressed because the law keeps condemning them and telling them they're no good and you're bad and this sort of thing. But what if the problem 
is we're actually imprisoned under the dominion of sin, but don't know it. What if the kindest thing we could do is not pretend that we're awesome and amazing people who can do anything we put our minds to? What if the whole self-esteem spirit of our age isn't just wrong, but a deception that keeps us from realizing the truth so that we can be freed? Indeed, what if the best thing you can learn is how hopeless and helpless you are, imprisoned under a power so great it is the very fist of God resting upon your life? Not because that in itself is so great to learn, but because then you can begin to see the enormity of God's grace that lifts you up. There's more to the law's role in our life than just exposing our sinfulness, but it is the one that we struggle the most with. But what if that struggle's good and necessary? What if it helps us find rest in grace? We constantly want to be free. We constantly want to to do our own thing and to be our own people and to be whatever we think we are. What if the best thing we could find out is that we need a Savior who is amazing and gracious and loving and good? Then the law is hardly working at cross purposes with the promise. It's very working, it's working very diligently to bring us to the promise in Jesus Christ, to help us see that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to Jesus Christ. You see, here's one of the great oxymorons of the Christian life. The more we realize how miserable we are, the more we realize how majestic our Savior is. The more we realize how majestic our Savior is, the more we realize how blessed we are. Now, we like the end part. We like the bit about being blessed. We like that part. We want to get there. We all want to get there. The part where we go, life is grand, life is good, God's amazing, my heart is filled with joy. The problem is, is we don't like the way that we have to get there. That is, we don't like the first bit, the bit about our being miserable. But you see, when we deny that bit, then we also lose the part about Jesus. We lose the part about His grace. We lose the part about His love. We lose the part about His forgiveness. We lose the part about His amazing faithfulness. Indeed, it's a simple equation. The more highly you think of yourself, the less highly you think of Jesus. The less highly you think of Jesus, the more frustrated you're going to be. And the more you're going to think there's a problem with this religion's business because it's constantly making me feel bad. But if you submit, if you go, okay, all right, I'll admit, I'm miserable. And you stop justifying yourself stop blaming other people stop pointing the finger and just sit and see water poured out on Peyton's head and hear again God say but I choose you your heart will be overwhelmed your spirit will be amazed your mind will be filled with nothing but joy the more highly you think of Jesus, the more you find yourself able to rejoice in all of His goodness towards you, even 
even in the trials of life. Because then you say, Lord, in this moment I learn my dependence on You. I discover, as Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12, that when I am weak, then You are strong. See, the law is trying to get us to smarten up. Trying to get us to stop justifying ourselves. Stop defending ourselves. Stop proving ourselves. And start listening to the glory of our God in Jesus Christ. Now you have a reason to read the Old Testament. Now you have a reason to listen to those Ten Commandments every Sunday. Now you have a reason to go, ooh, I think I, think I made a mistake there. I think that was wrong. Now you have a reason when the office bearer of the church comes and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, what does the Word of God say here on this point? And you're tempted to say, wait a second, that's some arcane Old Testament. We don't live by that anymore. But just let, let that Word penetrate for a minute so that you can hear the Gospel. So that you can be given to all who believe the riches of God's grace. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it's true, we don't like the law. We don't like the law because it's so humbling. It, it, it tells us we're not good enough, and we think we are. It tells us we can't do it, and we're pretty sure we can. And all of this defensiveness, Lord, keeps us from hearing about the good news of Jesus Christ. So we pray, Heavenly God and Father, help us to, to not think of the law as the world does, as so many in the church do, as this negative thing that we want to avoid. Help us instead see how it serves us, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, family, our neighbors, co-workers. Helps us to go, wait a minute. If that's true, then I'm lost. So that in that moment, our hearts may be filled with the joy of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this in His name. Amen. Our song of response is 436, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place from Guilt My Soul is Free.